Yeah, this is Shots Fired, episode 32. This is recorded live on the 30th of May at Lot 1 in Los Angeles for the book signing of Tupac vs. Biggie and Illustrated History of Rap's Greatest Battles by Jeff Weiss and Evan McGarvey. Our guest was Layla Steinberg, former manager and friend of Tupac from the early days. What can I say? Uh, it was a good one, and it was uh, right on the spot. And uh, yeah, I think you should enjoy it. First off, thank you for coming. My name is Jeff Weiss. My name is Evan McGarvey. This is No Can Do. Hi, my name is No Can Do. Our guest, our special guest is Layla Sandberg. She was uh, Tupac's mentor and first manager. Mm -hmm. We're also taping the podcast Shots Fired, which I co-host with No Can Do. Yeah, that's why I'm here. <laughs> anyway, so the book that we're reading from is, uh, an is Tupac versus Biggie, an illustrated guide to rap's greatest battle. And uh, I thought we could just uh, kick it off by me reading a chapter from the book. It takes a special sort of man to wear leather. For instance, you or I should not wear leather. I'm not talking about the brown leather jacket you bought up in Ann Republic to match your chinos. I'm not talking about a city slicker's ready pair of boots. I'm talking about leather. Hells Angels leather, Jim Morrison leather, Wild Ones leather, Tupac leather. There's a thin line between leather and outright insanity. <laughs> it's a last fashion bastion before you drape yourself in feathers, leaves, and Oglala Sioux war paint. Whoa. <laughs> the wrong leather, and you're immediately fast-tracked to a Germanic goth sex palace. When was the last time you saw a shirtless man walking down the street in a skin-tight black leather vest with zippers on the front? What did you think? <laughs> exactly. But that was what Tupac wore on the cover of All Eyes on Me with the word safe sex inscribed on the left breast. And the world almost unanimously agreed that he was absolutely terrifying. A rap Thor. This is power. Or something. His tattoos tell the tale. Start with the chest. His first tattoo, the word Tupac. Make no mistake, Tupac and Tupac, the artist, were two totally different creatures. Examine any creation myth or Joseph Campbell journey. This was his warrior's path the rap game, a way to sate his wandering creativity, lust for fame, and empty stomach. The tattoos were figurative war wounds that soon matched literal scars. Tupac was dedicated to deliquescing the memory of the bookish boy in the corner, picked on for any number of trivial flaws. Tupac was psychologically barricaded to absorb all bullets and spit them back at exponential velocity. Mid-torso. A machine gun emplaced with the words 50 niggas converted into Tupac slang which. The acronym stood for ne Never Ignorant Getting Goals Accomplished. Even his body was an attempt to reclaim words, code them in familiar symbols, and stake his own flags. To the right is a bust of Queen Nefertiti, the wife of the Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaten. Together the royals had ushered in the worship of Aten, the sun god. Beneath her face read the words to die for. One of the most powerful women of ancient African lore, it's unquestionable that Tupac saw her as a synecdoche for all black women. I don't need to tell you that Tupac was capable of misogyny. All About You does a good enough job with great million march gags. But no matter how extreme he got, he rarely forgot his mother and sister's plate. The tattoo was another reminder, a silent memorial to the trauma he'd seen them endure. His lyrics flesh out the picture. Whenever Tupac talks about his black queens, it's Nefertiti he's describing. It's Afeni. It's any woman who ever offered him physical or emotional harbor. 
Straight down his spine was a massive block script crucifix with the biblical marking Exodus 1831, which states, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because he delivered the people from the hands of the Egyptians when they dealt with them arrogantly. It encapsulates the attitude and turbulent spirituality as neatly as anything. He is the modern vessel for the rebellious spirit. He believes a higher reward will come to those who resist. He identifies with the runaway slave, parting seas, and shattering empires. This is the legacy of his namesake. On his left lat is the jolly mask of Greek drama. Laugh now, and its tragic partner cry later, adorning his right side. Not only is it a direct reference to his thespian roots, it's a nod towards the separate spheres of his personality. The Tupac who emerged from prison was loose, wired, and engaged. He had some good times, corrode and he'd seen good times corrode into ambulance trips. He was a man acutely aware of his mortality and the consequences of his actions. His response to the existential void was answered by the tattoo just below. Ballin. <laughs> Later co-opted by Jim Jones. <laughs> Everybody wants the ball. The slang word is versatile enough. It can mean hoop, fuck, or wild out. It alludes to both living in the moment and riding out on all the suckers. <laughs> it alludes, excuse me, it alludes to both living in the moment, okay. Tupac belonged to a special class of baller. Everyone from Jasmine Guy to Madonna to Haitian Jack and Jimmy Henchman wanted to kick it with him. Re-examine that same cover of All Eyes on Me. He's smoking on a boat, sipping what appears to be a banana daiquiri. Maybe Thug Passion, his drink of choice, which they're not serving tonight despite my best protest. <laughs> Next time, though. Money looks limitless. He's young, black, and gifted. Tupac might not have invented balling, but he perfected it. And he could sell that to you with the raise of a glass and the lift of an eyebrow. Biceps, forearms, shoulders, neck. A panther head, Jesus' head on a burning cross, a skull and crossroads, and the words, heartless, player, Westside, outlaw, notorious, Machiavelli, and mob. <laughs> oh, there's more. The phrases, trust no one, fuck the world, only God can judge me, and my only fear of death is coming back reincarnated. He was a Hells Angels in rap form, the bandit in all black and a 500 bends, balling towards Gehenna. The coup d'etat, taught, it was thug life across the abdomen. Like Christ and all his rock star disciples, Tupac had the chiseled physique to be plastered on 100 million stucco walls. Thug life was a mantra, particularly when Tupac flipped it into an acronym, an acronym the hate you give little infants fucks everybody. Thug life became the war cry that he and his fans used to inflict revenge on their enemies. He'd sublimated and spit back Dr. J Johnson's maxim about becoming a beast to erase the burden of, becoming, of being a man. And that's why I'm trying to tell you why Tupac can wear leather. His frame was temple to his invincibility scars and long eyelashes. Hedonism and hellish rewards immolating in a 5'9", 165 pound fireball. So even to this day, every girl still swoons at him the way they still revere James Dean or Coco Kurt Cobain. His early death forever enshrined him in the pantheon of outlaw sex symbols, the only black man crashing the Rolling Stone throne wine and weed party. And this is the iconic image of Tupac. It's not the original impression. The world first peeped Tupac in the 1991 video for Digital Underground's same song. No! <laughs> How better to introduce new rap royalty than by having him ushered in on a king carrier surrounded by solemn thugs and dashikis, wearing a crown, a pointed banana-shaded kufi, and dozens of African chains and clutching a staff. He looked like the hip-hop incarnation of coming to America's Prince Hakeem. 
1991, one year prior to Dr. Dre's The Chronic, Tupac's Black Panther Bonafides fits snugly into the clenched fists and brimstone rhetoric of the Afrocentric era, but rap fashion and slang move at a runway world velocity. Several months later, Tupac blew up with the Brenda's Got a Baby video. By now, he had a deal on fledgling Interscope Records, and his rip from the headlines eulogy to a slain prostitute named Brenda earned heavy rotation on Yom TV raps. Stark black and white visuals replace the camp of Samsung. Tupac wears a beanie, baggy pants, and a thick parka. A diamond stud glints in his nose. The piercing became one of his most distinctive visual characteristics, a mask of androgyny that softened his coarse aggression. By album two, Tupac was shirtless on the cover. Ella Cool J and Big Daddy Kane may have been the rap game's Alfred Kinsey's for introducing sexualization and marketing schemes, but Tupac rewrote the report. This was no accident. The mainstreaming of the genre started in the early 90s, with female listeners playing an increasingly important role in its popularization. Tupac understood this from the jump, famously telling Biggie the immortal words, you gotta rap for the bitches. <laughs> you had to dress for them too. He was both the bathing suit clad Mac and I get around, and the thinker in a black jean jacket on the cover of Me Against the World. In his own way, he might have been the 1990s gangster rap parallel to Dylan McKay, the Beverly Hills 90210 teen soap opera stand in for James Dean. You, you laugh. Dylan McKay was really cool. <laughs> Same familiar archetype. Bad boy rebels from broken homes, closet intellectuals, unusually sensitive, eager to fight. And in this scenario, Steve Sanders is played by Snoop Dogg. At the 19... We're almost done. <laughs> Sorry. We're getting there. At the 1994 Source Awards, Tupac is at the height of thug life. Beleaguered by legal and financial stress, he's at his most sartorially modest. A backwards baseball cap, red sweatshirt, and a single silver crucifix. Shortly thereafter, he swapped the blood colors for prison blues, a muting that inevitably led to the flamboyant reaction of his death row years. Flamboyant seems too timid an adjective to describe the 1995 California love video. Out on bail, fresh out of jail, Tupac, Dr. Dre, and Hype Williams created a post-apocalyptic golden state in which Oakland was overrun by fire, steel cages, girls in leather miniskirts, and men dressed like Mad Max from, by way of the Legion of Doom. Also included in the census, Fungmaster, Roger Troutman, Chris Tucker, and the dwarf from Bad Santa. Biggie had morphed from Big Papa into the King of New York, but Tupac had seen the future, and the future had bandanas, tunics, and leather. There's another California love video, but no one remembers it. Intended to be the sequel, Tupac wakes up from his Thunderdome dream and calls up Dr. Dre to shop at the Compton Swap Meet. <laughs> then they party with Deion Sanders, DJ, and, DJ Quick, and E-40, obviously. <laughs> this is probably a more realistic approximation of the real lives, but realism matters less than believability. I'm much more inclined to believe that Tupac inhabited a bizarro 2095 Bay Area than a place where he and Dr. Dre went shopping for Jerry Stackhouse Filos at the Compton Swap Meet. The flip side was Tupac as elegant Don. Biggie limped, prematurely aged like Marlon Brando as Don Corleone, wearing heavy linen suits that seemed to match the disproportionate weights on his mind and frame. My co-author Evan says that Biggie was Michael Corleone, but to me, Tupac has always been sw Michael, swaggering and deadly, a primal manifestation of youth. See him in the video for two of America's most wanted, the baby-faced gangster floating in the black bends, casually smoking, feasting, threatening, or examine his appearance at the 1996 Grammys, clad in an all-black Versace suit, no tie, death row chain swinging. He smirks and tells the crowd, how you like this Versace hookup? <laughs> the swap meet was closed. I've said that so many times. <laughs> Comes naturally. 
He knows how far he's come from the kid with $5 in his pocket, greyhounding it all the way to Oakland, vowing to enliven the staid Grammys. He then introduces Kiss. You know how the story winds up. When you frame yourself as mortal deity, martyrdom is the only possible end result. Tupac may not have been alive to offer input on the Don Cluminati 7-Day Theory album cover, but it's, most, it's his most haunting image. You've seen it, I'm sure. Pac in the bandana, shirtless, nailed dead to a cross. Biggie created a stylish gangster flick with an eye for detail that Coppola might envy. But Pac was already the movie star, so he wrote his own leather-bound mythology that became posthumous religion. Good times. All right. Well, I'd like to introduce Layla and have her come up and, you know, get on stage and talk about first time you met him. What stage? Sure. <laughs> so I guess we should start off, you know, what do you remember when you first, I mean, obviously you remember when you first met Tupac. What stage was he at at that point and kind of what do you remember about it? You assume that she remembered when she first met Tupac. <laughs> you um, can't not remember when you first meet Tupac, no matter who you are. So that is a good one. <laughs> well, hi, I'm Layla. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. My yeah. pleasure. You're yeah. welcome. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. If you, if you don't know, basically, Layla was his first was his mentor, his first manager. She hosted the microphone sessions, which continues in Los Angeles, originally was in the Bay. And the first time you met him was, he was, he was dancing, right? No. Met, no? At the park? Was it the park? <laughs> he wasn't dancing at the park, but he no. was dancing he at, at the, the club. At the club, yeah. At the club. Yeah. With a dude named Bart. Let's <laughs> <laughs> start rhyming. Yeah, so t I mean, what was, what was Tupac like when you first met him? I want to tell the Tupac story, and I hate that I said I'd sit here and then I feel like this is all in my face, and I want to see everyone. I, I had the idea that we should just move these mic stands and just like hold the mics and speak. I thought the same yeah. thing. Yeah. Thank you. What do you guys think about that? This shit is awkward, ain't it? Yeah. Is that better? That's way better. Yeah. So you were already hearing my thoughts. How many of you grew up on Tupac? Just so I know. How many of you are here because you have family or loved ones that actually wrote this book and you really know very little about Tupac? That one right there. My parents know nothing. It's dedicated because uh, they never asked me once what I was listening to. And this is the beautiful thing, and that's the great place to start because how is it that at 17, Tupac came into my life and completely changed the course of my life? So that would be a good place to start, right? And what were you doing, Jeff Weiss, commentating on hip-hop and Tupac, right? When I was four. <laughs> I probably had an opinion. I was, pro, I was very pro-Raffy. So I'm going to start with me because I can't tell you anything about my connection and how I came to Tupac or he came to me unless you understand where I came from. 64th in Vermont, first home, Los Angeles. Weren't you born in L.A. too? Yeah, I was. I was with, no can do How with many that. of us I were, was born in San Jose, but I'm from 57 in Western, so like... And I was right in the Bay. There. Yeah. So we were trading places. For I love sure. the Bay. What part of the Bay were you in? Um, St 
started in North Bay, North Santa Bay? Rosa area. My mother moved there when I was young. Okay, yeah. And Tupac actually stayed with us in Rohnert Park, of all places. Rohnert Park. Has anyone ever been to Rohnert Park? I'm going to okay. Google Rohnert Park right now. <laughs> Quick. I mean, there are Tupac statues in Rohnert Park. Look, 7465 Bridget Drive. And I don't remember very many addresses. That's okay. true. All right. <laughs> so, okay. I never made a lot of sense to myself, very identity challenged as a child growing up in first through sixth grade, predominantly black schools in Los Angeles. My mom came from Mexico when she was nine. She's Sephardic. My father's Steinberg. Layla's Arabic, Steinberg's Jewish. Um, Spanish speaking in a black neighborhood. I was very, very confused. Mm-hmm. My father used to get in trouble in Los Angeles, Central Juvenile Hall, I think, in ninth grade. Good Jewish family, two parents at home, but somehow affected. Why was my dad getting in trouble? Maybe because his journey would be to work in the same neighborhoods he started in. So my dad became a criminal defense attorney in Los Angeles. Wow. So my formative years were watching my mother, who marched and worked with Cesar Chavez, work to make a difference to women, become active and, and really committed to making a difference, and then my father who defended criminals. Hmm. I'm young, confused, and a father who kept saying there's something wrong with the system not the people. How dare he? And then, um, and then fifth grade, going to juvenile courts, I asked my father why white kids didn't get in trouble. My dad was a public defender. What did your dad say? Because white kids usually have private attorneys. Fifth grade questions. You have to understand the questions to understand how Tupac and I had such a deep connection and how you guys are writing such important history, right? Because this is history. So, seventh grade we moved. We migrated from Los Angeles to the west side. New schools, very different education, and my formative years began in a very different school district. And I suddenly had to wonder why I was so privileged to move from poverty to the beach. And what, what part of the west side? I, just, I need more details. Santa Monica and then Malibu. Okay, cool. So, I, I, I'm from out of town. That's to nice, PCA. right? That's, that's nice? Yeah. It really makes nice. A There's difference. so many Whole Foods over there. There's none in South Central. There's a Whole Foods on every corner. Yeah. Whole, on every corner. Have you seen Seba the Bell? Yeah. The that's helpful. Seba yeah, the Bell. Seba the Bell. Okay, okay. Big lockers. So honestly, we, we could laugh about it, but my connection to Tupac was pain. It was the pain of at a very early age, I understood that there were two educational systems, that I had to leave friends that I loved and see the treatment of people very different. And I'm kind of the palest in my family. My mother's brown, Latin, and I began to understand that I was treated differently than my family. And I wanted to do something, I wanted to see something really different. 
And I got married young and moved to the Bay Area. And I always As you should. connected with arts. Arts are where we have humanity. It's where we can connect different than anything else. And so my love of arts and being a young mother, I moved to the Bay. And this is a long story that I'm really trying to condense, but you have to understand the day that I met Tupac was so life altering because he affirmed in his very different biology and skin and age and male and female, I had such an instant connection the day I met him because our commitment in our lives was just to make a difference because we were in pain. And so I met Puck at 17. Wait, were you 17 or was he 17? <laughs> I was 26. You're 26, so you're only like nine years older than him. That's yes. Tight. Okay. And God, I just began to tell you this whole story and it all makes sense. And <laughs> you have to understand it to understand how we met. But um, when I moved to the Bay, I had two daughters and I wanted to affect education. And arts were the way that I knew that I could somehow speak a language and start to think about what I could do in programs. And I had a husband who was a DJ and worked with a lot of early rappers. What was your husband's name? Bruce Crawford. Bruce Crawford? We're yeah. no longer married. Love him. Wonderful oh, your ex-husband. <laughs> My ex-husband. Ex-husbands are the best husbands, right? So, <laughs> but, this is so serious and you have to turn it into comedy. And I, I keep don't looking at your big smile. But it really is. I don't even come out and talk about Tupac, even though he's such a part of my life. But you, I couldn't say no well, to, and I want to read the book. So, should I keep going? What club was it that you met him in? So, I met him at a club called Easy Ease, supposed to be 21. And my husband was DJing. And I had a dance company and worked with many artists doing assemblies in schools. And I would um, use the assemblies to promote and market the artists my husband worked with and to develop this curriculum that I now have that took 25 years for me to finalize that started in those days that said, wow, we could go from school to school, spend 90 minutes in front of teenagers and say things that no one's willing to say in our songs, our poems, our dances, our raps and we could begin to affect education. So I had this wonderful idea, but my husband was working with Too Short and Easy e and all these young artists that couldn't speak the language that I knew because of my mother and, and Tupac's mother, but I didn't know at the time. Um, we had an obligation to speak another language, even though I love Easy and I love all of the roots and everybody that we started with, I wanted to have an artist I could work with that could change a generation. Because like I said, as a child, I learned that a song can change a generation faster than a politician. So um, I told my husband, I love what you do, but now you got me in it, I'm gonna find that one artist that I could work with and believe in. And so at 26, I decided to hold auditions <laughs> all over the Bay for this artist that would become the national touring voice of this program that I 
had started. And I held this audition, and Tupac didn't come. But a young man named Ray Love came. Cab, Cab Calloway's grandson. Such an amazing young writer. And he was the one. But the problem was his father came and said, this is an unhealthy business, and I don't want my son in it. I would do the same. I was, I was like, no, because he was really able to have the conversation that I knew we could have with music that could change race relations, violence relations, and everything else. So Ray wasn't able to do it, and I kind of stopped thinking about this person that I was looking for. And a young woman in my dance company said, oh my God, Layla, there's this kid that moved from Baltimore last week. He's running around Marin City reciting poems and rapping. You have to meet him. I was like, yeah, okay. That sounds weird. <laughs> if I heard that right now. Hunter. Okay? I'm just saying, if somebody said there's a kid in Marin that's reciting poems and rapping, I'd be like, send that kid away. <laughs> I was looking for hungry like that, though. So, I didn't want to drive to Marin City unless it was on a day that I taught, and I actually worked in Marin City. And she said, Tupac, there's this crazy lady who works with rappers, when rap was not the thing to do, and she goes to every neighborhood and speaks at the high schools, you should really meet her. And Tupac was like, no. So that's how it started. And this went on for three months. And I was at the club, and this young man jumped in, I always danced, you know, with the dancers, whatever. And suddenly I'm dancing with this young man at the club, we danced, didn't talk. He danced with all of us in the circle. And the strangest thing was that the next day I was in Marin City to teach my class, and there was the person I danced with on the dance floor, and that was actually our meeting. And he was like, weren't you the Yeah, weren't you? What's your name? And we realized we were supposed to meet, and we had heard about each other for three months. So that was the beginning. Yeah. Wait, what year was that? 88, I think. What kind of dancing was it? Was it like break dancing or popping a lock and a like what? How did you any, any know I used to? <laughs> I don't know. I just want to know. You know, I used to um, pop lock and break dance. All of okay, that. yeah. It's tight. It's funky. Kind of <laughs> we might have been spinning on the floor for all I know. I don't know. It was a long time ago. Yeah, cool. Do you remember when uh, the first time No Can when you the first time yeah, I heard Tupac danced at a club? The first time you ever danced the Running Man? <laughs> the first time I heard Tupac. Yeah. Uh, my stepfather is a. Uh, Criminal, <laughs> dope dealer, all that gangster rap music that's, that was happening. I was listening to that continuously. I really wasn't a fan. I didn't get it. I was just like, you know, it's just my parents' music, you know? And, uh, you know, I remember when the first time I got Tupac, I was 14. Uh, I was living in uh, Fairfield, California. My father just passed away. And um, uh, he, he died of cancer. So basically, like, right after he died my aunt bought me a boom box with two cds one was whatever cd that had will smith getting jiggy with it, on it. big willie style i think i had big willie style <laughs> and, you know he was like in, in white pants and a flamenco shirt on it and uh, i think that's the miami video yeah the miami yeah it's i miami but uh the other cd uh was one of like tupac's post uh you know, uh, post-death CDs or whatnot. And, uh, 
you know, after, like, you know, I always kind of had a rough life, but after something was there, like that really happened just then, like, but I used to put that CD on repeat. It was like the words were extra real now, you know? It wasn't just style, it wasn't just a style of music, you know? Yeah, yeah, life changing shit. It's it's interesting. If you said life life changes a lot of shit. I yeah. listen I listen to Tupac like around fourteen, you know, growing up a white kid in the suburbs in the mid nineties. There's sort of I f- it feels like one week where it was like, Hey, there's this new band, you gotta hear it. It's called the Wu Tang Clan. It's like, oh okay, no 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 no. It's like same same kid two days later, like, Hey, there's this new band, you gotta listen to it. Called Ghetto Boys and Scarface. It's like, oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. It's like ah, every day, this guy's bringing me great new bands. Who is um, this guy? Who's this guy? Just, was his name Internet? No, his name was not. This is 1995. <laughs> this is 1995. This is this is pre-internet. Um, and I remember listening to Tupac and be like, oh, he's good. But then listening to Biggie and Wu Tang Clan, be like, okay, this is what I'm truly into at this moment. This speaks to me right now. And it's funny, you know, someone I know says there's there's a difference between downloading something in art. Like, yeah, I saw that movie, I saw the TV show, and really, like, living with it and understanding it. And to be honest with you, when I knew Jeff and I were going to write this book, I had to listen to all of Tupac's albums. I could kind of hit the touch points and be able to talk about it okay. But I didn't really feel it until I made myself sit down and listen to his entire catalog from beginning to end. And that, that was incredible for me, because it's like, for me, as someone who came to it, and you know, if we're going to talk about the sides, very much from the Biggie side, it was incredible to me about how, in his music, Tupac seemed to change as a man from album to album. And you can hear it in the music. And that's pretty incredible for any kind of musician to be able to do. I mean, yeah. Dear Mama is a comprehensively different person than Ambitions as a Rider. Those are two different people doing those two different songs. And n- that is rare, and that's incredible. Um, yeah. And, and so I got lucky because I, I really encountered him intensely all at once. And in some way, for me, it was like I wouldn't have it any other way. Like the whole catalog. Yeah, I guess the crux of the idea, at least when I first you know, started conceiving it and when Evan and me you know, started flushing it out, was that you sort of, there's like certain personalities in this world that like, they're like kind of divisive, like you either love them or hate them. And like, I kind of sense that like you're either a Biggie or a Tupac person, mm. and sort of like you're either a Beatles or Rolling Stones person. You know, it, it's sort of they're such like you know, it goes like Tupac. You know, I've never met a Rolling Stones person that like ever. <laughs> Are there any Rolling Stones people in the house right now? <laughs> no. Over the Beatles? No. Okay, like I said, continue. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. I mean, for me, I think like as a writer, I think like I kind of immediately gravitated towards to Biggie because I think Biggie used words in a real like the way in which he uses words was like it was very taut and he almost made every single word rhyme off each other and he could condense incredible amounts of information in a really short amount of time. Whereas Tupac, you know, we were talking about this earlier. Tupac was it was almost like a Jack Kerouac versus like Biggie being like a Philip Roth of you know, big Tupac like you know a lot of critics will actually hate on Tupac even to this day and just sort of like a lot of critics will hate on someone like Jack Kerouac, but it's, people are drawn in, I think, by the sprawl and um, the emotion and the rawness. And it, you're getting something unfiltered. And yeah, no, totally. It is, it's, for me, it was just like, Tupac is so direct. And it's like, if we're gonna talk about easy divides, it's like, all right, well then, Biggie's kind of like the compressed intellectual, and like, yeah, Tupac is emotion and spirit and heart, but it's, 
I mean, it's intoxicating to listen to yeah. it. You can, you can change the way you feel. That's why when we think about the way that we study artists, right. the reason that every Ivy League school in the country is studying Tupac now and that his global impact mm -hmm. is as it is, is because he heart connection is yeah. exactly, it is a spiritual, emotional connection. Totally. And so we academically, right and emotionally study him. And it's emotionally, if we connect emotionally, that's how you change the planet. So he has the following that he has in that area, whereas Biggie could write a beat like no one else. Right. So musically, and I have no idea what you're saying in the book. I just, <laughs> I knew both of them and I don't, I had an emotional connection to Pac, but I love Biggie. It, yeah. it, you know, it's funny, so, you, yeah. Yeah, you talk about global influence, I told Jeff this anecdote. I was living in Samoa, in this tiny island in Polynesia. You were in Samoa? I was living in Samoa. You know I went to Western Samoa last year to get Earl. I did know about that. Um, I was on a different <laughs> side of the island. Um, but it was, uh, you would see Samoan kids walking at night through the villages. This is Samoa, there are no lights. And they have a boombox. And they'd be listening to Hearts of Men, They'd be listening to me against the world, and they have Tupac T-shirts on. And this is just—I'm I'm a Biggie fan until I die. But they weren't wearing Biggie T-shirts; they were wearing Tupac shirts 100% of the time. And it was like—and I thought about it, and I, I felt it. I was like, "Yeah, he speaks to them, and, it, and he speaks to all of us, first of all. But like, of course, he would speak to like a Simone kid growing up in a village with little running water and little electricity, and really a slim chance of getting off island." Like it was, it was, and you know. But that speaks to his agenda too, as an artist, right. in that desire to be that voice. Mm -hmm. It he just couldn't get out of his own script, and that's the painful part: is that he definitely had to see himself as a martyr and a contradiction, and that that was his journey. My strongest work has happened since he hasn't been here, which is so sad because his generation and his identifying with what has been black male pain and struggle. And the one thing I could say about Tupac is when I look around this room, I see every generation, every color, age, race, coming to terms with and beginning to understand a historical struggle like never before. Pac got the youth. And the youth said, what's wrong with our parents? And I didn't mean to Yeah, well, I, I got like my, my little two cents. I know his, his, I mean, maybe you can, you know, elaborate on this, but uh, I know his mom was a, a panther. I, my buddy Rashid, his dad was a panther. And if your parents are a panther, they, they tell you about the old days, they give you the books. That's from what, from what I've noticed, right? And I know uh, they were all big on The Wretched of the Earth, that book. And uh, France Fanon in that book has this whole thing about the lumpen proletariat, the, about the kids, the children of, you know, uh, basically uh, whose parents are on drugs, the people whose, whose uh, parents are, you know, in a bind, so the street kids. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the idea of the thug, like, that, that didn't exist before. There was gangsters, there was crips, and there was bloods, but there was no... There was no like just young fuck ups, yeah. and I felt like the thug was the young fuck up, which most of America was, Black America was after the crack epidemic. You know? Yeah. I mean, it, so. if you look at his uh, his biography, it kind of mirrors like almost this like the sense of ruthlessness. Ruthlessness. Like he, he was uh, in, when he was in utero, his mom was actually in jail, 
in New York for like uh, for like a plot. Suppose she was acquitted, but it was a plot to to blow up like a bunch of New York landmarks and stuff. Wow! And then he moved to Baltimore, and then it was interesting because you know his favorite album was the he you know he said that he told the source in 1992 that his favorite album was the Ghetto Boys, which was pretty rare for a you know rapper at that time to kind of be that vocal about Southern rap. And I think that's a big reason why he ended up being the most influ- He's probably the most influential rapper in Southern rap, and he. You know, one of I mean, Scarface and the Ghetto Boys, and anyways, he moved to the Bay, comes to LA. So you have that sort of diaspora kind of element of his music, I think. That whereas Biggie's very much bound by like the claustrophobia of New York City, like his rhymes are layered on top of each other, and Tupac is just, you know, he has nowhere to go but right it, at you. It, 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 I'm I'm glad you brought up Biggie's rhyme patterns and style. P- perhaps someone could read you a little bit about Biggie's rhyme patterns. I've and heard style. good things. Wait, what are we talking about here? There, if only there was some way someone had written yeah. something about Biggie's rhyme patterns. I think you should go for it. I think I should too. Yeah, um, So, one of the great things about this book that's now on sale um, is uh, one of the things Jeff and I wanted to do is because in so many ways they're totally inseparable, Biggie and Tupac, we wrote kind of companion chapters. So, what Jeff just read to you was about Tupac's aesthetic and Tupac's style, and then I wrote kind of a companion matching chapter about Biggie's aesthetics and Biggie's style. And I think it kind of, it provides a great spine for the book, uh, and uh, this is my response to Jeff. So this is Biggie. Chocolate milk, pickle juice, mad blunts, gin, cracked crab, lobster, coogee sweaters, MAC-10s, private stock, Bacardi Dark. Sex and expensive cars. Whether he's the notorious B.I.G. or Biggie Smalls or Christopher Wallace or the black Frank White, we're talking about a man driven by appetite. The endless pit of his appetites make him the presence. And Biggie's presence devours the space around him. You can hear it in his, bur- in his baritone on his first single, Party and Bullshit. He raps like a hungry adolescent. Conversation, blunts and rotation, my man Big Jock got the Glock at the waist and we're smoking, drinking, got the hook of thinking. There's no difference between the chatter, that was Biggie by the way, not me. Uh, There's no difference between the chatter, the weed, the girls, the drink, and the violence. It's all happening at once. Biggie's hunger is universal. Destructive appetites and creative ones build the identity together. He's hungry for a scene, he's hungry for an atmosphere, he renders the details of the scene so he can eat them. 19-year-olds don't really care what they drink or eat or screw. As long as it's happening, it's fine. He's good. Biggie's voice snaps in party and bullshit. He doesn't so much warp the stresses in a line as he chews them. He turns the tiny eye sounds in thinking and stinking into something loud. He cranks his voice up into like a roar, and it rounds the vowels out. It turns these I's and E's and O's into something bigger. When he says Heineken later in the song, he turns the natural stress on the first syllable into a blasting cap and lets the rest of the word just fall like a thud, like a beer can being opened. These are the choices of a young artist. In the early 1990s, Biggie raps with a metrical rigor. It's the choice that poets and jazz musicians make. You have to learn the craft. Biggie songs as content always involve with the theme of craft. Biggie raps about learning how to do stuff. He pops 
the last and first syllable of lines. He flicks emphasis on and off like a light switch and gives the words in party and bullshit a deliberate energy. He never abandoned the technique fully, but listening to the later recordings, you hear more moments of conversation, longer pieces of speech. But on party and bullshit, and from ready to die, machine gun funk, respect, unbelievable, the flow creates these new cadences where different words pick up stress. You can see it in Biggie's appearance. Even though Tupac's attitude and identity changed throughout his life, his image stayed pretty constant. As Jeff points out, he and Jim Morrison are probably the two most shirtless figures on dorm rooms across America. In contrast, Biggie let his dress change his identity. When he starts out, he's in boots, huge t-shirts, blue denim, and the 1992 baby face. He's kind of in uniform. Uniform is a hustler's. A hustler with cherubic features, he's trying to scowl with, but a hustler all the same. The infant on the cover of Ready to Die sits on a white field with nothing on his body but a diaper. Surely, this kid is not ready to die in the way that old men are ready to die, having made peace with earth and whatever life was. The child is ready to die for something, for material success, for a legacy, for some kind of future security, for something, for an appetite. Tupac's songs reflect the desire for spiritual knowledge, the desire to pass that knowledge on to an audience. Biggie sticks with the physical. Tupac's songs speak to the heart. Biggie goes to the senses. On Juicy, the fusion of the emotion and the tangible proof, the details, is transparent. He says he loves his daughter by promising to put diamonds in her ears. To himself, he pledges physical transformation. The evolution in Biggie's presence mirrors a transformation we hope for in ourselves. We want to go from hoodies to suits. We want to move from being promising and proving our work to being the king. The cover of his first album, A Baby in a Diaper in an Afro. The cover of his second, A Colossus in a three-piece suit, leaning on a cane, under a fedora, peeking out from the side of the hearse. Look at the album cover again. He's leaning over the hearse and looking at you. Even in the photos, Biggie embodies the concept of compression. He runs through the stages of man. He talks about exactly what clothes you'll be wearing at exactly what moment. He elegizes himself in the third person. The last words he has on record are, remember he used to push the champagne range. He's not even himself. He's moving just onto material objects. The 1995 Source Awards, the East Coast, West Coast, Anger dominated the shows that dominated contemporary hip-hop. Bad Boy Family was the centerpiece. Junior Mafia just, had just released Conspiracy. Puff Daddy, Sean Combs. And since we're talking about Godfather, Sean Combs playing the Tom Hagen to Michael Corleone. Um, Biggie's own Ready to Die was a year old and was already regarded as the new East Coast hardcore album. Biggie was the center of the performance. While never nimble, he moved on stage authoritatively. He paces in front of the backup dancers. When Puffy dips, shouts, and swivels, Biggie just stands there. At the end of the performance, when Little Kim clomps off the stage, Biggie just glides around. He's the planet around what everyone else is orbiting. It's an odd sight. Christopher Walsh was an only child who was always literally larger than his peers. He had more things than people felt. His mother had a master's degree and would practice vocabulary lessons with him when he was growing up. 
She had a master's also in early childhood ed, which I always think is interesting. The education of Biggie and Tupac's mothers is so essential. Yeah, it's essential. Um, but he's older now, and the Source Awards performance, he has subordinates, a partner, everyone hanging on his word. In the two years before, the atmosphere had pressurized. The conflict between East and West Coast filled the airwaves. The apex of hip-hop was an unenviable place to be in the 90s. Really great albums came out at an ungodly clip. That's always astonishes me about 90s rap, is how many incredible albums came out within months of each other. Um, you know, within, after, you know, Tupac was on album two, three, as not just the, the first Wu-Tang albums, but the solo albums started coming out. Jay-Z's debut, Mob Deep's The Infamous. The music video was replacing the freestyle. Biggie was standing on a precipice of the way we listen to rap. If Tupac's grace was his ability to create a lecture or a sermon about anything and make people feel it, Biggie's gift was the commitment to the material world. The last glimpse of, glimpses of him are deeply physical. Close to 400 pounds, he's bigger in scope. He literally takes more of the frame. An accident, car, almost fatal car accident in September of 1996 put him, sent him to ICU where he gained a tremendous amount of weight and spent the rest of his life, nine months, with a cane for walking. He almost was paralyzed. A rumored affair between Faith Evans, his wife, and Tupac galvanized the animosity around Tupac and Biggie. Right? This is Michael Corleone at the end of Godfather 2 and before 3. He's immobilized by what he's done. Tupac greets the darkness of this age with a braggadocio and gallows humor. The music video for Hypnotize, the lead single for Life After Death. Biggie and Puffy are driving backwards through Los Angeles. I always thought this was an astonishing thing to do in terms of an image. This idea that these men are in danger and they're driving backwards. They're driving blind through the streets of L.A. They never tell you who's chasing them in the video. It's just unnamed guys in black helicopters and black motorcycles who've been spying on them. During the video's conclusion, they go to the hidden underwater lair of Bad Boy. Biggie barely moves again, just surrounded by girls and gold and sharks and glass. The video is a luxurious paranoia one in which Biggie lives in a material world that is so far removed from Earth, it looks like purgatory. To choose between Tupac Shakur and the Notorious B.I.G., you, on a lot of ways, have to choose how you accept material life and death. The seemingly omnipresent sunglasses Biggie wore in his last months reflect some kind of refusal, some kind of willingness to not really look at life spiritually but materially. He's blocked out literally parts of the world and we don't get to see his eyes, we don't get to see his full range of expression. We don't really know what Big is thinking. It could come down to poses. Tupac showed his body to the camera and performed in front of the camera in a way Biggie never did. Tupac offered himself in states of emotion, in states of grace, in states of torture. Tupac seemed playful, energetic, engaged. I was in LACMA today and I was thinking, I was looking at all these paintings and it was like I was walking through the Italian room and all the stuff about hell and pain and suffering and their faces were like, okay, that's Tupac. This is this way of living in the world of spiritual existence. And then I walked into the room with all the Dutch painters, these old, rich guys who aren't moving and the whole frame is black except for gold or a lobster or a map. That's Biggie. That's Biggie. Biggie, Biggie resembles the 17th century paintings of Dutch merchants. 
They're men obsessed with the physical world and the tangible rewards because their spiritual world, this Protestant Calvinist afterlife, is just a big, empty void. Awesome analogies, and that's what I'm talking about. It's really, um, it's so amazing to witness after being there with them, and because um, it's strangely my history too. Yeah, I would like. And, how did Tupac evolve well, in the course of when you knew? Oh my gosh, he stayed the same and evolved in so many ways. It's the ultimate question of: Do we become what we want to save, and how we? Um, also take people with us over the cliff or we elevate them and it was a struggle to participate and to be too young and in it so fast that I even when I saw the course that we were all on and we're all accountable we're all responsible for their deaths every one of us that was a little older and participated but ultimately and we're finally in a time and in an age where our youngsters are so much more aware that they know what comes out of their mouth has an impact. They know that they don't have to experience a lot of what we did. But what I know is that in the essence of Pac's voice, the fact that you're writing what you're writing, you capture what his commitment was. He wanted to wake everyone up. He just wanted to know that we could have rooms like this where we studied, talked about him, and that people who would never think that Tupac was a point of reference, a hundred years from now will study Tupac to understand the shifts in consciousness and the conversations around race. He wanted to go to Soweto very badly. The uprising in Soweto happened on June 16th, which is his birthday. He never got to go, so I took my kids and I went. And what I understood in going was, in South Africa, although apartheid was a, a very identified system of oppression, and we've never identified our racism here or our oppression here, we run from the truth. And so when I spent time in South Africa and worked doing the work of our organization, I understood that they move so much faster in the healing because they have the conversation and the kids are able to address the pain and move beyond it. Tupac wanted, because it's different in the way that things happened in this land and, and in the US, but he just wanted to live long enough that he opened the doors of conversation. And the one thing I can tell you, it was almost 25 years ago, we started these sessions in my living room and I still teach every week to this day when I'm not touring with artists that um, I represent, but the conversation was this. Seven of us wrote together, and it started by all of our different experiences, we'd pick a topic, whether it was pain, abuse, laughter, and we would all have to, in poetry, songs, or whatever, articulate the emotion. Tupac was really so much brighter than all of us, that he began to write his songs as curriculum. So when it got difficult to have the conversation, you could put on Papa's song. And everyone in this country and globally that feels abandoned or has struggled around a father gone, 
could play his song and have the conversation. Temptation. Everybody on the planet deals with issues around temptation. So he gave us a song. Brenda's got a baby. How many families have children who are molested or deal with incest? No one wants to talk about it. So Tupac said, I'll tell you what, Layla. This is real, I'm just sharing like the essence. And I can talk a lot about Biggie too, you, you nailed it. Because Biggie saw so much poverty. If you're not eating, you can't think about education and spirituality. Tupac didn't come from just one thing. He came from education, poverty, a little bit of taste of privilege, private school, scholarship. The window into education changes people, and he then becomes that story. He read more than anyone I know. Les Miserables is actually his favorite piece of music. Yeah. Favorite. And he played more classical music than anyone I know. He introduced me to music that I didn't know. Listen to Genesis. You know, Peter Gabriel studied. In, uh, in uh, Dr. Dyson, Di Dr. Dyson's book, it talks about Tupac's reading shelf in jail. Yeah. And it was essentially, you know, half the Western canon. Uh, well, he came out of it, in, you know, with Machiavelli. Yeah, you know, right. I'm sure he was reading. So, I, I, yeah, it's incredible. It's, no, it's, in, it's incredible. It's incredible the way that I think Tupac engages with art and philosophy in all of his songs on such such an incredible level that he makes it relatable for audiences, which is like, as a, someone who wasn't there, it's incredible. I was going to ask you, as in, you know, <laughs> no can do. If you don't know, no yes. can do is a... <laughs> Somebody said that. Yeah, what up? You know? And, uh, you know, as a musician, as an artist yourself, what, do, what have you taken from both of them, and how do you think they resonate still today? Uh, well, I feel like... Like, let's say I had to use, like, one attribute from each of them to, like, make a better me. Uh, with Biggie, he he seemed to never lose his cool, you know? Like, the whole, uh, like, how, how, like, Drake, I know you hate Drake, but, you know, Drake never him. never answers back to any, any disses. Like, I, I did a lot of battle rapping or whatnot, and when I was at my best, I was in my head, you know? And the other dude wasn't there. And I feel like Biggie was that, you know? And so I would, I would take that attribute. And uh, I feel like Tupac, the attribute that he had, I feel, I, like if he didn't die, you know, he would have never stopped, uh, he would have never stopped doing amazing things. It was just, it's like, like just, like, he's like fucking Wolverine from the X-Men. You know, like, he's yeah. just like never gonna give up. And there's always like, this is hunger for, for progress, you know? Yeah. And uh, he, he just kept getting better yeah, in, in all of his work. So always being cool and always developing. Yeah. yeah we didn't even that. talk about it that much in the book, but he was probably one of the best actors, like, for a rapper ever. Oh, yeah. You know, and he was a great actor in, 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 on his own. I mean, that was what kind of blew him up in the first place was, you know, that. What's the Buddy Cop movie? The Buddy Cop Gridlock. movie. Gridlock. 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 Amazing. Uh, I, I thought I thought it was good because it was because he wasn't playing you know like a street kid he was playing buddy cop and um and you know what's the other one Juice which I always say that Juice like Tupac was playing uh, Tetsuo from Akira you know he was he's a kid that got picked on and then when he got the power he flipped and he made you believe that he flipped and you were like you know what you should flip because your life is not that cool and you should you should take us you know yeah. It's yeah. yeah, no, it's crazy because I've interviewed like some of the most gangster rappers, and their favorite rapper is always Tupac. Mm -hmm. And 
it's amazing how he he did that where but also like you know i was saying earlier like he's also one of the most political artists outside of public enemy in terms of what he was saying i mean when towards the end when he was kind of in that kind of more gangster persona did you what were you thinking when that kind of went happened went, went down i was part of it i that's why I say we were responsible. Were you guys picking I, out white t-shirts I, together? I came from Conquers. the neighborhoods that he wanted to make a difference in, and I brought him to L.A. and to South Central. And in order, I mean, that's why I said, I started witnessing the juvenile halls young, and that's where I work, still do today. Never stopped the work. But we um, had this vision when we first started that we would be emotional education and emotional healing. And we didn't actually have the language then, but we had this amazing plan. Well, when you surround yourself with pain and neighborhoods and you continue to go in prisons and juvenile halls and stand on the corners, because he thought he could minister to the streets. He was never gang identified, he was street identified. Because in the streets, there's poverty, there are children of addiction, you know, we have young people in here today, maybe they'll want to share, like, direct connection to who Tupac spoke for. And, you know, Billy's sitting right there. He's been my student for a while. But it's really that serious. And so Tupac said, in order to make a difference, I have to go to where the difference can be made. And you don't understand how the three to five to 20 closest people next to you is exactly what the fibers of your being become. And it's as simple and as powerful as we're all still in this room. So we all have to say, are we having people in our immediate circle that are elevating us? And we didn't know it then, but we were searching for the language that we now have. And the other thing that I feel just in my responsibility to what we started is that I ran from it for a long time. It was a very painful time. It's what you guys write about, but I never had to live and be surrounded by violence. Was I crazy? I um, could have got married and lived and been taken care of. I was young and beautiful. And I, I didn't know that until I was in my 50s and I could sit back and say, wow, what a hard path I chose. I've seen so many people that I loved and wanted to see grow die. How does that make sense? It doesn't. And they weren't my white friends and the white kids. It was every black and brown kid that I loved had been touched by the most brutal violence. And so now I feel so blessed that I can even show up and tell the truth and say that your writing makes people continue to pay attention. And this particular generation has changed education. And my curriculum is now finished, definitely inspired by Pac. And I think every school in the country one day will start with emotional education and include financial education. And those are the two pieces that both of them represented. Biggie had to have financial elevation in order to think about anything spiritual. And Tupac felt if we weren't spiritually and emotionally okay, money didn't matter anymore. So, I hope I <laughs> said something of significance tonight. Maybe people want to ask us questions. Yeah. <laughs> questions? Questions?
man with the rap. Oh, thanks. I just want to thank you guys for your work, and I wanted to thank you for working with Pac when he was a teenager. And I wanted to affirm that in 99, I went to Johannesburg in Soweto with a USC student who had graduated. And uh, I went to a funeral in South Africa three years after we lost Pac. But I remember the conversation that we were having across the water about like the guy from the ANC, one of the guys, the freedom fighters from the ANC, who was going to SC at the time, back in 93, 96, was talking to me about Tupac at the time when Tupac was alive. And he was comparing Tupac's um, art to what they were doing in ANC. So I was saying, even while Tupac was alive, people in uh, South Africa were really identifying with his poetry. And then after we lost Pac, I was in South Africa, and they were wearing his shirts then, and they were feeling him then. So Pac really did go global with his poetry, and I just want to thank you guys for writing about somebody that really helps people. Um, on a different note, um, do you think uh, Tupac really slept with Faith Evans? Uh, this is what <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. 100%. I'm going to go. Yeah. I mean, I I'm think. sorry. No, I actually, for the Our, sake that's of... That's a very unprofessional question. Thank you. No, really what I was trying to say is that Puck was really fine. Everybody loved him. And he slept with a lot of people. I don't know, Faith. I love you. I hate. That's the turning point. That's what I wanted to say. We get so blinded by our own shine that we feel invincible and we're irresponsible. And when we're young like that, even if he did or didn't, that song hit him up. I remember I was going to cry. I said, please don't put that out. You can never take back what you put into the universe. And when you publicly put something like that in the universe, there was a series of events that cost them both their lives. And that's the other conversation. I speak about Pac and his importance, and his, he is so beautiful to me, but he did some shitty things. And we all did. And so we have to look at that. That's so, um, yeah. He um, had a lot of women. They loved him. <laughs> I, I think after you put a girl on blast like that, you probably won't get laid from her again. And I think that's his <laughs> fatal mistake right there. Because they could have got divorced later, yeah. and then, like, you know, they could have had a rendezvous somewhere. It's a free social media too. Yeah. It was pretty hard. It's yeah. interesting that you mentioned hit him up because that's like, that's, I was talking to Jeff about this literally before we got here, and we were saying, you know, that's, that whole incident is so representative of their style because Tupac just unleashes just like, Best molten volcano oh, yeah, rhetoric, oh and then, and then Biggie's response was two lines on Jay Z's song Brooklyn Finest. His, his, the retort was two lines: "If Faith have kids, Faith have kids, she probably have two pox." That was, was a Jay Z line. That was Jay, no, that was on Brooklyn's Finest when he yeah. guessed it on it. That was, that was no, a, that's a Biggie line. That was a Biggie line. That was yeah. Biggie's verse. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, wow. But I that's. Don't, I don't like either of them. I don't like that at all. I, 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 <laughs> but, I, I, but, that's but, so that's self-deprecating pain, to be like. Like, yeah, that did happen. But that's, yeah. but even in this incredibly painful, violent situation, they went to their craft, which I is know. which is real, which is like it, I mean, it's tragic in a way that even in these incredibly violent situations, they both made their very representative art out of it. Yeah, I mean, and I think like that's there's something to be said about that. Even though like the message might have been poisonous and hit him up, like there are people that are going to be angry and enraged, and like that is it's its own form of catharsis. Like, I mean. It's like that. It was like a battle cry. I agreed with that part, but you don't have. Not everything is for everyone to hear. Like no, totally. sometimes yeah. you vent, 
But that's what I'm saying. And that's the first generation of no filter. You know, that's where phones started. It's where everything shifted. And so the internet made it impossible, videos. And so you couldn't just vent a little and then no one had to know. Yeah. I feel like it's, uh, it's easy to spot uh, Biggie's influences in terms of like the mafioso movement and everything. And I get that everybody's influenced by punk, but like, are there like as visible kind of uh, descendants of Pac around today? Or is it just sort of like integrated more seamlessly into the whole fabric of modern rap? I feel like, let's say, rap was soup, right? Biggie would be celery. You taste it, but I think two pockets of chicken broth. Yeah. Really, I just made some bullshit up. <laughs> None of that makes any sense. <laughs> I mean, when I... Yeah, when I was in uh, Louisiana, you know, they were talking about, uh, you know, how Boosie would record, and it was with a big mural of, of Tupac on the wall, and I think it spoke for almost every kind of, Freddie Gibbs is a great rapper from LA, and that's his favorite, uh, you know, if you, and these are people, I think if you say something bad about Tupac in front of you, they will hit you, and there's not that many people that can inspire that kind of reaction. Tupac changed the way rappers use I, Tupac changed the way rappers use the first person, like in the creation of who they're going to be when they get behind yeah. the microphone. Kanye, I think Kanye West, like you know, to, like he might not admit it publicly, but there's a lot. And Eminem, I mean, Eminem wanted so badly to produce his his well, posthumous Tupac record that he went to Afini Shakur to ask for permission. Hmm. Any other questions? The end. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? All right. Well. We'd love for you guys to stick around. Yeah. Peanut Butter Wolf is going to spin, and we're selling Cop books. Copies, copies on sale. There's a perhaps autographed. Thank you so much to our panelists. We really appreciate yeah, you thank joining you so us. Much, thank you, guys. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Layla. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. This has been an Earwolf Media production. Executive producers Jeff Ulrich and Scott Aukerman. For more information, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolfradio.com The Wolf Dead.